to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're continuing in our series called About Jesus. This is in the Gospel of Mark. Um, You might wonder, why are we going through Mark? Mark is my favorite gospel, and it's one that I've taken people through the most. It's fast-paced. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, Many believe it's the oldest gospel. I just love how it moves. I love how it speaks. And the whole heart, the whole reason why we started with Mark was because I want us to be a church who we're disciples who are making disciples. And so I want us to be a church who knows how to bring others through a gospel where we can come along somebody, take them by the hand and introduce them to Jesus by pointing them to a gospel, to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and let the word of God do the talking. And we just bring them to it, sit, sitting over coffee or over a lunch and reading the word with them. So we have eight stories that we're walking through. And my hope, my prayer is that you would take these eight stories and walk through them with your children, walk through them with your neighbor, walk through them with a coworker, walk through them with an, uh, a friend. Uh, and, and this is, this is the, I think, uh, an important thing for us to do as we, we long to be disciples who are making disciples. So that's the heart behind this. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for gathering us again this morning. Thank you for your mercy and your grace expressed in countless ways in our lives. Lord, we pray that as we lean into your word today, we pray that our eyes would be open, that our hearts would be softened, that, God, we would receive from you, God, that your spirit would, would continue to just mold and shape us into the image of your son. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is A Trial of Another Kind. Everyone loves a good courtroom scene, right? Whether it's a movie, a TV, or real life, as long as it doesn't involve you. (laughs) It's filled with drama, tension, one witness after the other, justice hanging in the balance. Even this week, President Trump's former lawyer was, was before Congress a second time. Questions about credibility and motives were rightly being asked. But today, in Mark 14, we're given, Mark 14 and 15, we're given three trials. And all three involve Jesus as a central witness. All three involve questions of credibility and motives. The first involves the religious authorities of Jesus' day. The second, the governmental authorities. And sandwiched in between these two trials is a trial of another kind altogether involving Jesus' closest friend. Let's look first at Trial number one, and Jesus before the religious authorities, starting in Mark 14, verse 43. No, not verse 43, verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, 
Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. We'll pause there. Jesus is before the religious authorities. Everything Jesus said would happen was beginning to play out here. He's taken before the high priest, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Verse 54 mentions that Peter followed Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest. It's kind of like a friend watching his buddy get into a fight, but decidedly keeping a safe distance. The whole Sanhedrin, the ruling council, was there. They were looking for evidence, it says, against Jesus. And here's the reason. Here was their motive so they could put him to death. Now let's pause here and ask, how did we get here? Because our last talk out of Mark was in Mark 10. Do you remember? In Mark 10, uh, Jesus' disciples, some of his closest disciples are saying, hey, teacher, we have something uh, that we want you to do for us. When you come into your glory, when you come into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and your left. And then Jesus took that as an opportunity to teach them what, what true greatness really is. And do you remember what he says? It's in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a ransom for many. This was, you could say, is the, the purpose statement, the mission statement of Jesus' ministry in life. This is why he came. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then after that chapter, we, we didn't talk about it, but I hope that you read it on your own if you haven't already. But in chapters 11 through 13, Jesus enters Jerusalem with the crowds and they're waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David because there was this prophetic anticipation of what God would do that this coming king would come and free them of their oppression and slavery. They're laying down palm branches. In chapter 14, Jesus is anointed with oil in preparation for his burial by a woman who everyone's freaking out about. Then he shares a last supper with his disciples and predicts Peter's denial. He then prays in a garden this this gut-wrenching prayer to the Father. Then Judas Judas betrays him with a kiss. I want to back up and I want you to see what happened after Judas betrayed him in the garden. Verse 46 of chapter 14. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword. Many think this was Peter. Had to be Peter. He drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Oh my. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was, I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Listen, then everyone deserted him and fled. Everyone fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's the only place in scripture that this is written. Many think this was uh, Mark writing himself into the story. I think that's pretty funny. Mark was potentially there as a young, young man. And uh, there was a young man, and he, he fled naked. They grabbed his, his cloak, and he was out of there. The next scene 
is the scene we just read about with Jesus before the religious authorities. They couldn't find any evidence. They were looking for evidence against Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. In fact, many testified against Jesus, but their statements didn't agree. They lacked credibility. It's not looking good for the prosecution at all. All they have going for them is false testimony. And then some stood up and brought the, their strongest accusation yet in verse 57. They, they, they speak uh, of him saying something about destroying the temple and in three days building up another one. And yet even in that, there's a conflicting testimony. What they're referring to is most likely in, in John chapter 2, it's not even written in Mark, but in John chapter 2, Jesus stands before them and says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And he was speaking of his own body. After the resurrection, the disciples would remember what he said. Destroy this man-made temple and I'll raise it up in three days. No, he's speaking of his body. They thought he was speaking of the temple that took 46 years to build. He was speaking of his body because Jesus is where we find God's presence. We look to Jesus. We don't look to a temple. We look to Jesus and find his presence. That's where the presence of God dwells. The high priest has had enough of this interrogation. He says, are you not going to answer? Jesus is silent before his accusers. I think the religious leaders would have potentially remembered Isaiah. I want to to draw your attention to the prophet Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. We read this last time we talked out of Mark, but look at verse 3 in Isaiah 53. Very important. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed." We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. If you're reading this gospel account with someone, I strongly encourage you to turn to Isaiah 53 and read this passage with them. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah was writing about a suffering servant to come. Jesus fits this description perfectly. Jesus is the suffering servant that Isaiah was speaking of. He was silent before his accusers. But the high priest has had enough. He gets right to it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And this is the central question of the gospel of Mark. Jesus answers it head on. No more parables, no more silence. Jesus answers with a clear, I am. But then he adds an exclamation point by, uh, by quoting a mixture of, of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. The veil is being lifted here. Everything is being put on the table. 
By quoting these passages, it's as if Jesus has just cranked an amplifier to 11 and shouted into the mic what he means by Messiah. He's making it oh so clear to the religious authorities who he is, what he believes about himself. Son of man was a title taken from Daniel 7. And at the right hand is from Psalm 110. I encourage you to read these uh, prophetic passages. He's, He's saying, I'm the promised king who rules over all who sits at the right hand of God, who comes to judge. In Daniel 7, we read this a few weeks ago, we, we, we saw the Son of Man who comes from the throne of God to earth to judge the world. He's given all authority, all power to judge the earth. Jesus is claiming deity. He's claiming equality with God by referencing Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, and he knows it. He specifically is saying that he is both king and judge interesting because he's being judged the high priest tears his clothes as an expression of outrage and horror the verdict blasphemy because they were putting all the pieces together they knew what he was saying here's the irony of this trial the king and judge overall is judged and condemned for all god the son condemned for blasphemy So what at first was a trial, an unjust one, immediately turns into what feels like a riot. They start to spit at him. They blindfold him. They punch him. They mock him. Well, this is the one who's claiming to be both king and judge, who's equating himself with God. Oh, but he's deserted by his followers. And oh, he's standing powerless before us. And oh, how could he possibly be that glorious Messiah that he claims to be? And he's condemned as worthy of death. Yet they didn't have the power to put him to death. The second trial that we see is Peter before a servant girl. Let's read about this. Verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with the Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter is below in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. He's on edge, no doubt, wondering what's going on. His mind, I'm sure, is in a thousand just different places and going in a thousand directions. Everything Peter and the other disciples had been hoping for was unraveling. It's coming apart. And put yourself in his shoes. At least he was kind of following Jesus, even at a distance. That took courage. He's in the courtyard. He's waiting. I'm sure he's trying to hear what's going on. Enter a servant girl who looked closely at him and says, you also were with that Nazarene, Jesus. His stomach drops. 
His palms begin to sweat. His heart beats harder. It's decision time for Peter. Peter isn't standing trial before the religious council of his day, is he? He's standing trial before a servant girl. Verse 68, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Like a deadly virus, fear invades and destroys and attempts to control. He was filled with fear. He left the warmth of the fire. He ducked into the entryway of the courtyard, away from the others, trying to get away, trying to not cause a stir, not not cause a scene. Again, that servant girl pops up. Annoying servant girl. Verse 69, this fellow's one of them. Once again, Peter denies it. But then the servant girl starts having an influence on the others who are standing around. Oh, wait a minute. Surely you're one of them. Dude, you're a Galilean. Peter's accent, his mannerisms, his previous conversations with them. They were all just putting it together. And verse 71 is so strong and crazy sad. He begins to call down curses on himself. He swears, I don't know this man you're talking about. Complete denial. Total betrayal of the one he said he would die for. Total betrayal. The one just days and really hours prior, he said he would never deny. This is Peter who confessed, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. He was probably the guy who cut off the ear of the the high priest's servant in the garden, ready to fight. And here, before the servant girl, he's filled with fear. So much so, he calls down curses on himself. What happened? What happened is that fear and doubt started to invade his heart and his mind. What happened is the Messiah, the one who is king and judge, he was being condemned to die. He was being judged before the religious authorities. Things were starting to unravel. The king and judge overall is rejected and betrayed by his closest friends. How did Peter get to this place? Fear is oh so influential and doubt is oh so real. We can relate to Peter in so many ways. He put himself first. He put his safety first. He put his reputation first. He would rather disown the one whom he called Christ, than disown himself. Have you ever been there? I have. I remember uh, being at a Starbucks and ordering a coffee, and the girl across the counter said, you look like Lucifer. (laughs) Exactly. What? (laughs) I'd never been called Satan before, but I was trying to see the compliment behind it. Uh, apparently there was a show at the time that that there's a good looking guy who looks like Lucifer Um, and (laughs) I was trying to I was like okay this is a sweet opportunity to somehow bring Jesus into this conversation but I shrink back I shrink back in fear And as I I look back at the conversation, I'm thinking, I was afraid of what? The Starbucks girl. (laughs) I was afraid of her 
maybe her, an expression, maybe an odd look, maybe a blank stare. What was I afraid of? Why did I shrink back from the Starbucks girl? And honestly, it's the same reason Peter shrunk back from the servant girl. Fear. It happens to us. And I just said, Lord, please forgive me for that. Please give me more opportunities to be a faithful witness for you. And he, he has, and he does. I'm so thankful for that. Immediately, verse 72, the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered, he broke down, and he wept. In Luke 22, verse 61, Luke records that the Lord turned at that moment and looked right into Peter's eyes. Imagine. So somehow they could see each other. Peter's in the courtyard down below. Jesus is up in the room being, on, on this, uh, being tried. And, and as the rooster crows, Jesus somehow turns, and Peter looks, and they connect. You know that awful feeling you get when you say something about someone and you don't think they're around? You turn around and there they are. You know that feeling in your stomach? Oh my, they just heard what I said about them. In the chaos of the questions, the noise of the trial, did Peter think Jesus wouldn't know? That look drives home the fact that Jesus knew, he knew what Peter had done. He knew, he had predicted it. He heard the rooster he looked right at Peter. Have you ever experienced immediate grief that was so deep that it just leads you to break down and weep? I mean, immediately. As you're even just saying what you're saying or right after you've said what you said, just so sharp and, and, and out of anger and, and frustration just to hurt that person. Maybe you've done something just so out of character, but you did it because you were just in self-preservation mode. Peter is in self-preservation mode. He shrunk back out of fear now he's putting up all these walls and he's, he's, he's not wanting to be called out as a follower because he knows where that could lead. He's trying to protect himself at all costs. Now I've been there. And I've hurt the ones that are closest to me with my words and my actions. And what does it produce? Almost immediately as they're coming out, this grief, this brokenness. Now we can respond to it or we can hide it and get hard and callous towards those that were interacting with we can repent i believe peter broke down out of repentance and remorse he was broken broken so we've witnessed peter at his lowest haven't we it's usually uh, through the most painful or regretful and embarrassing moments of our life that we learn that we grow that we change this moment shaped peter it shaped his ministry Peter actually struggles with fear the rest of his ministry. You can look at Galatians chapter 2 as an example. Peter struggles with fear. He has to be pushed, but he learns from it every time. And in Luke 22, Jesus actually said, when you've turned back, because Jesus knew he was going to betray him. When you turn back, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. You're going to turn back, and I want you to strengthen your brothers. And then in John 21, do you remember this really cool conversation that Jesus has just with Peter? And he says, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know, you know I love you. Okay, feed my sheep. D then he asks, do you, do you love me, Peter? Yes, yes, I love you. And then he asks a third time, and it, it hurt Peter. But you see what Jesus is doing? Peter denied him three times, and now after Jesus is resurrected, he is having this conversation with Peter, and it's like he's saying, Peter, you've denied me three times, but now, Tell me you love me three times and know that it's, it's okay. 
His grace is sufficient. His mercy is there. The third trial we see in this story is Jesus before the governmental authorities. We got to get moving here. Chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You see, see, there it is again. Are you the king of the Jews? It's the central question of Mark. Who is Jesus? And here we're being told who Jesus is. This whole story is framed by this question. The high priest, are you the king? Are you the Christ? And, how, and then P- Pilate is asking that same question. And he says, yes, it is as you say. Jesus answers in the positive. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to silence the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate is the governor whose main responsibility is to keep the peace. The the politics of the day required working with the religious leaders, really appeasing them. Pilate is the only one with the authority to condemn Jesus to death. So the religious leaders need to get his okay. He wouldn't have cared about their charge of blasphemy, so they bring many charges against Jesus. But the one he did care about was his claim to be king. Anyone confessing to be king was by definition rebelling against the emperor and was guilty of treason. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. And then we're introduced to a custom, a custom uh, of the feast or the Passover. It was Passover time. And do you remember the story of the Passover in Exodus? The children of Israel were being delivered out of Egyptian slavery and the angel came through Egypt and brought judgment on every household who hadn't obeyed God by putting the blood of the lamb above their door. Had they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and then hid inside their home, they were safe. And so the angel would pass over. This is a celebration, a very important feast. And I think maybe as an act of of mercy, the government was releasing a prisoner to the people upon their request. So here they are celebrating Passover. It was a custom to release somebody. And Pilate is thinking, okay, we'll release Jesus. But they won't have it. The crowds were stirred up. And and the, the, the religious leaders were stirred up. And they demanded Jesus to be crucified. And Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this, this murderer, to be released. Verses 9 through 15 reveal Pilate's struggle. He knew the religious leaders were acting out of envy. But the the crowds were influenced, and it was decision time now for Pilate. We saw that it was decision time for Peter and how he caved. And now it's decision time for Pilate. 
either release Jesus, the innocent one who doesn't deserve to be where he is and risk a riot, or release Barabbas, the guilty one who deserves to be where he is and appease the crowds. What what does Pilate do? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas. The exchange that goes down in this story is powerful. It's one that should bother us when we see it. But at the same time, it's an exchange that should remind us of the exchange that has gone down for our salvation. Really, we are Barabbas. The Son of Man must suffer many things, Jesus says in Mark 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter would go on to write, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We're in that unrighteous category, every one of us, needing a righteousness that doesn't come from us, but comes from Jesus. The righteous dying for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That's what Jesus did for us. Well, politics win the day. Pilate caves in, cowardly makes a decision that's more about self-preservation. The king and judge overall is now condemned to die, and he's handed over to be crucified. As we close, it's important for us to see that there's really another trial going on here. It's one that's been going on for thousands of years. Everyone in this room stands before King Jesus as we read this passage. Everyone that we bring to the Gospel of Mark is brought before King Jesus as we read through these passages. Because the book of Mark isn't just simply a collection of random events that Mark kind of puts together, like uh, trying to journal your events after your vacation. That's not how he did this. It's deliberate in every way. Mark is presenting to us Jesus as Messiah. He is making a defense. He is presenting to us Christ, and it's decision time for all of us as we read Mark. It pushes us to make a decision. Now, whether we verbalize that decision or not, when you're sitting down with someone over coffee and reading Mark with them, whether or not they verbalize that decision, they are, they're coming face to face with the reality of who Jesus is right off the pages of Scripture. So leaving Jesus here on the pages of Scripture, that's a decision. Wrestling more with what he's been saying, pressing in and asking more questions, that's a decision. Fighting against self-preservation, that's a decision. Confessing fear and doubt, that is a decision. Asking for the faith and courage to follow him is a decision. Resting in his sacrifice in our place is a decision. Willingly labeled crazy and laughed at by every Starbucks girl you could think of. Dismissed for Jesus' sake, that is a decision. It's decision time. Peter made his decision. Pilate made his decision. What is your decision? We get to celebrate communion this morning as a response to the message. As we celebrate communion today, let's take time and reflect on what Jesus did for us. The trial he faced was for us. The exchange that went down when he stood before Pilate was for us. Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He knew what had to be done. Peter was restored, but he was battling fear. Maybe you're battling fear. Let's lay it down. Let's come to him in faith today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much 
Thank you for Mark 14 and 15. Thank you for what we see of you in the face of Christ. There's so much there. Thank you for the way you've challenged. Thank you for the way you've cared. Thank you for the way you've, uh, Lord, shown us Jesus, the fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy, and why he had to die and why he stood trial. Father, thank you that he did that for us. Amen.